Hello and welcome to Mountain Meister. It's the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. I'm your host, Ben Shank. My guest today is Caroline Gleick. She's a professional ski mountaineer, endurance athlete, and an environmental activist. So I climb up mountains and ski down them. This past fall, Caroline climbed and skied Choyo U, which is the sixth highest mountain in the world. And on today's episode, we'll talk about that adventure, which was full of the highest highs. It was a really magical moment, and I knew that it was where like, I wanted to get engaged. And the lowest lows. I just felt so sick. I just wanted to, I really just wanted to go home. Later in our conversation, we'll talk about the implicit and sometimes explicit bias that women face in adventure sports that are predominantly male. After my interview with Caroline, will be our company spotlight segment. We'll feature on-site equipment. They're based out of British Columbia and they make eco-friendly travel gear. I'll talk with their marketing manager, Jens Oram, about what makes the company special. Then Hannah Van Wetter, roommate Max and I will review some bicycle frame bags that we tried on our recent adventures. Now on to my interview with Caroline Gleick, who I spoke with after she returned from Choyo U. Could you maybe talk about the motivation behind that? Why'd you want to climb? Yeah, well, I've always had a dream of climbing and skiing in the Himalayas, and I really feel like that's always been my calling and the path that I've been on. And so I guess all the other things in my career have been building to that point for me. And I've spent like years doing research on different Himalayan peaks and trying to figure out which one I wanted to do and what style I wanted to do it. And I mean, I have just like loads of photos and articles and names of obscure mountains that I've researched. When I originally like kind of had this dream, I thought I wanted to try to do something that had never been done, like a new peak that had never been skied and maybe something lower, not 8,000 meters. But as I went down this like rabbit hole over the years, it's just really hard and time consuming to put together an expedition to a place that's not, that hasn't been visited before or skied before. And like, as much as I want to do something Alpine style, I kind of felt like at this point, I just needed to get there and do something because you can like do all the research in the world and dream, but eventually you need to pull the trigger and make it happen. What kind of, uh, what kind of extra work goes into researching somewhere that hasn't been climbed? Like, I, I, I understand what you're saying, but like, can you describe what extra work actually goes into it? I don't know if this is true, but sometimes when I'm researching like a crazy peak or something I want to ski, Rob will be like, maybe there's a reason that hasn't been done, hmm. you know, because yeah. a lot of the big classic, classic things have been done. And, um, but there's still a lot of things out there left to explore or different variations, but for ski mountaineering in particular, like it is so dependent on conditions on snow yeah. in a way I think is not the same as for climbers because rock is like more stable of an element than snow. So it's really, it's really challenging for first, for, especially for first ski descents. The weather is a big crux. Like if you're just one week off, it can like hose your trip. There's so many different moving pieces that you're coordinating with people on. Then you have to figure out the time of year and then come up with like an acclimatization plan so you don't go too high too fast. And there's just from, yeah, there's just so many different moving parts mm -hmm. that it can take weeks or months for these bigger kinds of trips. 
actually like the motivation for Choi Yu came from my partner because he has this 2019 goal where he's trying to climb. He wants to do this ultimate world triathlon. So he's a triathlete. So he wants to climb Everest, swim the English Channel and ride his bike across America. And he's climbed Denali and Aconcagua. And then, I mean, he's he's a experienced expedition high altitude climber and then with me we've done a lot more technical ski mountaineering and ice climbing so he wanted to do choyu to prepare for everest mm. and so just having him kind of like it was kind of nice for me actually not to have to be the one to put every part of it together because normally i have to spend so much time researching and putting these trips together so it was kind of nice that he was like really motivated to go and then in so because he wanted to do that and because there's not that many people I'd really want to spend a month in a tent with. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely. Not many people I would want to spend a week in a tent with, to be honest. It's a pretty short list for me. And so he was a big, Rob was a big part of the inspiration. And so so we pulled the trigger and we were like, we're doing it. So you, uh, you became pretty sick on Choyo, right? Yeah, so I mean, we did a lot of pre-acclimatization with this hypoxic tent we had at home, which helped a ton because we were able to go in like the first four days of our trip to 16,400 feet. Wow. Um, and then we stayed two nights at base camp, which is at 16.4, and then we moved up to advanced base camp, which was 18.7. And I felt okay when I first got there, but then over the course of the next four days, like I started to really go downhill. And I just had this horrible cough, but it wasn't just the cough. It was like this crazy fatigue where by the end of the time, like I could hardly even get out of, out of the tent and my, my blood oxygen saturation, which is like what we use to measure. It's like one tool to see how well you're acclimatizing, but it was starting to plummet down into the six, like mid sixties, which is really, really low. What, what am I right now at sea level? You're, pro you're like 99. Oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I mean, during our training in the tent, like we'd be in the seventies sometimes, and you feel pretty crappy when you wake up and your blood oxygen saturation is in the seventies. So being in the sixties, like it's it was horrible, and I just had a lot of difficulty breathing. And so, at like working with this team, and we had the high altitude doctor who was available like via Skype and WhatsApp. So she helped like oversee and make these decisions. And so we decided, I mean, I knew I was like, I got to go down. Otherwise I'm going to die. It was terrifying. Yeah. It was really scary. And I mean, at that point I didn't really care that much about not summiting. I just didn't want to die. I just wanted to feel better. Some people may uh, attribute feeling sick like that too. I didn't train well enough or some people may think that it's totally random. Why did you think you were feeling that way? Well, with high altitude pulmonary edema, I did a lot of research on it after the fact. And it's definitely one of those things that's just pretty random. I mean, age does have something to do with it. Like if you're under 40, you're more likely to get it. Or sometimes if you get an upper respiratory infection, like a cold, it can spiral into hape and progress really quickly. But, um, but it doesn't have anything to do with your training. For me, I think it was, I just did, I, I should have just been a little bit more, um, stubborn or I should have just trusted my instincts about how much rest I needed. Meaning that you should go down earlier. 
No, no. When I got there to the higher altitude, instead of like the first day, we were, I was with this our group. They are pretty aggro. I mean, in a good way. Like they were, they wanted to get after it and go for a long hike. And I felt pretty tired. And mm, I went for a three-hour hike, and I wanted to turn around after a half an hour. And I know my body, and I should have just trusted my instincts and and done what. I instinctually felt I should do. But it's hard when you have a group dynamic. It's really hard. Totally. Yeah, like people think like with training and everything, more is better. But, and like when you get up there, like get out there, go for a long walk. But for me, like after a lot of travel, I I tend to, I like to rest mm -hmm. on those big trips. Like I know what it takes to climb a big mountain. And so I should have just been a little bit more insistent. But who knows if that would have made a difference because like, it really, it could have happened anyway. And it could have just been, I got like a little bit of a cold when I was traveling and then it spiraled. You just never know. It's like pretty random. So as like defeated as I felt at that moment when I had to turn around and it's hard when you're one of the only women on a trip. And also I was probably one of the youngest people there. It's like hard not to feel like oh, everyone is going to think I'm such a failure or I'm not strong enough or all these things. So that was a little bit going through my head. But, you know, as, on the other hand, I was like, I just knew what I needed to do to get down. And I just felt so sick. I just wanted to, I really just wanted to go home. So you get a uh, pulmonary edema, you go down, uh, and then you go back up and you start to feel better again? Yeah, so I spent four days recovering at the bottom, and I really didn't think I was going back up the mountain. I really just wanted to go home because when you get that sick, the last thing you want to do is be camping in a, in a different country. Like, it's just so uncomfortable. And I got really bad. So it's pretty funny because to treat HAPE, one of the things you take is Viagra. Really? Uh-huh. It's oh, a vasodilator. Yeah, so I was taking Viagra. How'd you feel? And I mean, I didn't feel anything besides that it maybe helped my lungs a little bit. Okay. You didn't yeah. have anything, like you didn't have to like, visit a doctor after four hours or anything? No, I didn't have anything like that. I felt slightly better, but I had a really bad side effect of acid reflux, huh. which I've never had. So I was like up all night dry heaving and I wasn't able to eat. And like everything I would eat, I just felt like I was going to throw up every bite. So I was and this talking is from to the, the Viagra. I think it was from the Viagra. Like, I don't know. The doctor said that she hasn't seen that side effect before, but I'm pretty sure it was from the Viagra. All right. <laughs> so then I like haven't eaten in days and the doctor I'm texting with her. She's this really badass high altitude doctor named Monica Pires. She lives in, in Spain and she was like, I'm like, so should I go up or go home? And she's like, you know, they're encouraging me to go back up. And she's like, there's no medical reason why you can't go back up. And I'm like, Monica, I'm terrified. Like, I don't want the same thing to happen again because I just don't want to be ever in that much pain again. And she's like, you've done way harder things than this on skis before. Like, you know, just break it down, go up there, make it to ABC and see how you do. So it was really interesting. It was a really interesting experience. It was cool to have that encouragement from her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and to be able to go back up and give it a try. And so were you, did, when did you start to feel better? I mean, I like my lungs were better and my blood oxygen saturation was getting better, but I still like couldn't eat. So I hadn't eaten in like four days. She's like, you have deeper reserves than you think. Great doctor to have. 
Yeah, she was all, I mean, she wouldn't have said, like, we were all sending her all my stats and everything. And uh-huh. so, so I went back up and I felt better and I slowly started like getting better, like being able to eat. And then like every time we'd move up to a new elevation, we'd take like two days of rest afterward. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, we still had enough time on the trip to be able to go through like two acclimatization rounds, going to camp one, then back, then going to sleep at camp one and climbing up higher and then going back. And then we went for the summit. And we did it. Congratulations. And, and yeah. did you did you always think that you were going to start feeling worse once you started ascending to a higher point? I mean, I guess like it started to turn around and it's, I, did, I tried not to like worry too much because it's just I can't explain to you how tiring it is to do anything at those altitudes. Mm-hmm. So I had to really focus on quieting the worries in my mind because they would just drain my energy. Hmm. So even though I had these like nagging fears, I had to just sort of like, you know, note them and then just like move on and try to have a clear mind and just see, take it one step at a time because worrying just exhausts you. (laughs) There's a photo that I noticed at the summit of Choyoyu and it is of one person proposing to another person. Uh, I thought it was uh, in the smaller version of the Instagram photo, your husband or future husband proposing to you, but in fact, upon the zoomed in version, it's you on one knee proposing to your husband. Uh, How'd that go? Were you nervous? Um, I mean, I was a little nervous, but again, we were just (laughs) sort of delirious and in a daze and, I mean, it was a really magical moment and I knew that it was where like I wanted to get engaged and to in full transparency, we had talked about it. That was my next <laughs> question. Yeah. Yeah. Like we, I mean, I think it's kind of weird sometimes when people are like, I had no idea he was going to propose because I'm like, well, marriage is kind of a big deal. Well, I was going to say, if you <laughs> like, didn't talk about it and you were delirious, I'm thinking maybe this wasn't the best decision, but <laughs> yeah, no, like we had talked about it and, and I asked his mom for permission to propose to him. Wow. Yeah. Because I was like, if I'm going to do this, like I better make sure it's okay with his mom because, and she told me that she proposed to his dad. Oh, really? Yeah, so she, I was like, you know, I know it's kind of untraditional to be the one to propose. And she was like, no, it's not untraditional at all. She's like, that is the family tradition because I proposed to Jim, which is Rob's dad. Wow. So I thought that was really cool. And then it was like, okay, I have the blessing. And I think Rob, like, I think he was still a little surprised and was still really emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I was really happy that that he was like, I mean, it's really nice to have to be with a man who's like really masculine, but he's also like not afraid to have a powerful partner. Mm-hmm. So you obviously have a uh, like a presence in the public, especially in this niche of outdoor sports. Uh, do you want to send a certain message by posting this sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, I haven't, I guess it's a complicated relationship that I have with marriage because like growing up in a very traditional Midwestern town and I grew up Catholic as well, there's this feeling that I had a lot of my life that my value as a woman was connected to my desirability as a wife or like my marital status. And even through my being an adult, like, I mean, I would still say it's something that's hard for me to grapple with because like marriage is a big deal. And it's always been that I've wanted to find a husband. And so it's just a little bit of a way to like flip the story. It's a little mix up and it kind of gave me a feeling of 
power back in the whole in the whole context of marriage. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes sense, but <laughs> uh, no, it makes it definitely makes sense. Um, yeah, I I was maybe saving this question for this interview or uh, or maybe not bringing it up, but uh, I feel like it's a good time to ask this. With your your brand being your career, I wonder at what point like supporting your brand starts to change your identity. So like for example, would you would you get down on one knee and propose to your husband if you didn't have kind of this brand to support? Th- th- am I making sense here? Yeah, no, totally. I mean, it's something that I think about all the time, like because it's so easy with social media and with like having your life and like the intimacy of your relationship being something that is like for public consumption. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting to be aware of how that changes decision-making with whether it's like about an engagement or whether it's about how you ski a line or, you know, whether you go back up a mountain or not, all these things. And, and I, it's, I mean, it's hard for me to say a hundred percent that, that being who I am and the brand that I have, maybe didn't change it a little bit, but I do spend a lot of time just meditating on like, what are my goals and what like really fires me up? And am I sure that that is what I want to do if I didn't have sponsors or if I didn't have social media? Because I really want, I really don't want to do things for the likes or for the comments or for engagement. Because like, I don't know. It's it's important for me to stay true to who I am and not make decisions like as a brand. And so, I mean, I probably could have a lot more followers if I posted more bikini shots, but I don't really want to objectify myself and my body for, for like people's approval. I, and for like commercialism and to make money. I mean, and I don't want to talk smack on any other women who find that empowering, but I don't find it like personally empowering. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I, it's a long-winded way of saying that I am really aware of that and I really make a conscious effort to do what I want to do all the time and say what I want to say, even though it's not going to make people happy. Like, I do say a lot of things and do things that that people don't like. See, I get a lot of yeah, follows. Uh, I, yeah. I totally respect that. Um, I kind of, I feel like I sell out to my podcast at times. Let me give you a good example. Like sometimes I can do things as part of the podcast, which are like 70% of a vacation and 30% work. Mm -hmm. And why would I not go treat myself to 70% of a vacation when it's so much cheaper and I can make it a work trip? And then the podcast then ends up becoming like who I am. Slowly that's going to start changing my identity because mm-hmm. I'm just doing those things for my vacations instead of like a, a 100% vacation that could be something completely different. I completely understand and it's something that I struggle with. I mean, it's something I struggle with a lot. But at the end of the day, it's like, it's a hustle to make a living in an untraditional way. And so you have to make sacrifices. And I think if you're aware of them and intentional, that there's a way to find a balance and a middle ground. More from my interview with Caroline Gleick coming up in just a bit. But first, it's the season of giving. And I have to admit, it's a lot of fun to show your loved ones how much you appreciate them. But fellas, you may be missing someone on your list. Have you given a special package to your special package? If not, it's probably time you show him how important he is to you. 
Saks is the underwear that puts all other underwear to shame. Trust me, I've been doing laundry more frequently just so I can restart that cycle of fresh Saks underwear and I don't have to dig into the reserves of all that old and inferior stuff. In the spirit of the giving season, we have a gift to get you started with Saks. That's $5 off plus free shipping. Just head over to saxunderwear.com and use the code MEISTER at checkout. Again, that's S-A-X-X underwear.com. If you use the promo code MEISTER at checkout, you'll get $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase. You have written about implicit bias uh, in outdoor sports. Obviously, it's uh, it extends well beyond outdoor sports, but uh, particularly in what I, I guess I'm calling this 1% of outdoor sports, which are uh, the elite athletes, um, it's very male-dominated, especially in mountaineering. Um, have you, Can you maybe talk about one of the times that you've either written about or something else uh, where you've experienced this implicit bias? Yeah, it's it's something like when I started my career, you know, when I was in college, I was building my career and I was like, took a few gender studies classes. And I think like when I started out, I really had more of an idealistic view that the world was more equal than it is like we want to believe in equality right Mm -hmm. but then like as I really started to build my career I mean I think one of the first examples I can think of of experiencing like I guess it's harassment this would kind of be harassment is like I was working at an outdoor shop and it was my first day working in like the hard goods department in selling like kayak and skis and bikes and all that and it was summertime and so I got a call from a customer and they were looking for paddles like they were like trying to tell me what kind of paddle they wanted and I was describing the kind of paddles that we had in the shop and like after going through all the ones we had they were like well I'm actually looking for a kind of paddle you can spank people with oh god and it turns out it was the guys in the shop who were calling me the guys in the shop it was like they were calling from in the store Oh, wow. And they thought it was so funny. And it was that was my first day in the action sports department. Wow. It's like I hesitate to be the one who asks. I don't like to talk about sexism because no one wants to be like the sexual harassment girl. Yeah. But it's just a reality of like working in this world. And I think for so many other women in other industries, it's their reality as well. Mm -hmm. And so like I guess I'm at beyond the point of my life where I want to beat around the bush about things. Like I want to address things that bother me like head on. How does uh, a moment like that impact what happens with a potential woman that wants to like pursue this career? It definitely made me not want to work in the shop. Yeah, right. (laughs) Another experience that I had later on in my career was I was working for one of the brands that I've been like uh, working for a brand at their booth at OR and they hired me to sort of like run this little game. Like basically I was a glorified booth girl as one of their sponsored athletes. Like, and if there's any people from outdoor retailer here listening or from other industries that have trade shows, like don't hire booth girls, you know, it's outdated. So anyway, it was like happy hour and we're all hanging out and I was like maybe getting ready to say goodbye. I don't remember the exact details, but one of the reps, like an international rep, he was from a different country. He like went to say goodbye, give me a hug. And then he kissed me on the lips. Wow. And it was like so unwanted and, and it was just so disturbing and it happened so quick. 
So I'm an independent contractor and all the other people are independent contractors. So we don't have like a human resource department. It was just, I don't know, another little example. All these different things along the way where you'd want to quit. I'm sorry that you've experienced these things. Yeah, I think it's really common. And it's like, it's kind of a relief now that we can talk about them more openly. I wonder what uh, differences you'd like to see in what brands are doing, uh, in what the media is doing, and what the athletes are doing to hopefully start to eliminate this. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess like in snow sports in in particular, it's been, there's, there's so few women that are part of most teams that it creates a really intense competition between women. Mm. And so a lot of times, like it's hard for us to be allies and supporters to one another because there's really only one spot on each team. So I think like that, just being more aware of that and how that influences things. And, um, I mean, there's a whole bunch of like toolkits and ways that people can learn more about this and the way it plays out. But another like really common thing that I experienced in my career is like, I read it somewhere called prove it again, where when you're like, uh, minority in a industry, like people are constantly asking you to like prove your credentials or, you know, prove that you can do a job. You have to prove it over and over and over. I wrote about it recently when there was like a local pro pro athlete who asked me um, if I paid or traded guides to help me ski all these lines in this project that I finished last year. And it was just like a microaggression. Yes, right, right. And it made me so mad because like in my home mountain range, like in the Wasatch, I've spent so many thousands of hours walking around the mountains that I could definitely be a mountain guide here. I mean, I have been. And so it just was so frustrating to me what was behind that question Mm -hmm. in a way that like, I don't think he realized that it was that it felt like an aggression to me. I'll have that link post that to your uh, page on our website. Okay. So you have a ton of sponsors, which is how you make a living uh, or one of the ways you make a living. We get a gear recommendation from our guests, but we want one from a company that pays you and then one from a company that doesn't pay you. Okay. Um, well, I guess probably one of my favorite pieces of gear that's been my go-to for everything is my Patagonia Micro Puff hoodie. It's just incredibly lightweight and I mean it's like just a couple hundred grams and it's just been my go-to perfect jacket for a couple hundred grams not grand right grams grams yeah sorry it weighs it's very light yeah yeah I've become sort of like a tech weenie in how I approach putting my kit together these days like I just want to have the lightest weight gear that will get it done Mm mm-hmm and so that jacket has really surprised me and its versatility, um, like across seasons and different, um, different places across the world. Like it's kind of, it always comes with me. I, I love, uh, like that, that piece of gear that you wear all the time. Uh, I don't yeah. know. I, I place so much more value on that than, uh, like these super, super specialized pieces. 
Yeah, I mean, that jacket I can wear at skiing, like I can wear it in the summer, like I wear it all year and it's just light packable. I can travel with it. And I really just like having that versatility. Mm-hmm. Patagonia micro puff hoodie. Okay, now uh, the one that I'm more excited for, sorry, is uh, one from a company that doesn't pay you. I would say my GoPro. Or, I mean, yeah, more of the GoPro. The drone has been fun, but the GoPro is more like... Is it the GoPro drone or a different... No, no, I have a DJI drone, but uh, it's not as... I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend... Drones are annoying, and they crash. They're a headache. Oh, okay. So, okay. but my, my GoPro here, I have a Hero 5. I would love to get a Hero 7 now. But that little camera, I mean, I've had so many different generations of them, but they take such great photos and the video, and they're so lightweight. So you're telling, me, you're telling me that you pay for your GoPro. You don't have a company sitting yeah. on? They don't send me one. They're really? so, like, yeah, yeah, they, yeah. Huh. I'm, yeah, I buy them. And, I mean, there's other competitor cameras now, but I still think GoPro takes the cake in terms of uh, image quality and usability. Okay. So we have a GoPro and a micro puff hoodie from Patagonia, both links on your webpage on our website, mtnmeister.com. Last question that we like to hear is who would you like to hear next on this show? Well, someone who's really inspired me is Shelma John from um, Hey Flash Foxy. She's a... uh, she's. I met her doing some lobbying work for the American Alpine Club and Access Fund in Washington, D.C. She's a real leader in the outdoor space, especially in the climbing world, in terms of getting more women outside. And then she just has a really interesting point of view on a lot of things. But one thing she said to me that will always stick with me is like, when we were at this lobbying event, I remember I thought that the, the organizations had done a really good job of like bringing more women and people of color and just, you know, really bringing a more diverse group to the table. Mm-hmm. And what she said to me, and she's like, before we give ourselves too much at, a pat on the back, we need to look at who's at the top. And when you look at who's leading all of our groups and who's at the top, it's all men. And so that's something that's really stuck with me because it's like you can have, you know, panels of diverse people. But if you look at who's like, at the top making leadership decisions in organizations or in sport or whatever, it's really telling about the power dynamics. And so I really want to help encourage more women to get to the top, to stick with it, with mountaineering or skiing and in the outdoor industry as a whole. Caroline Gleick, you can uh, find out more about her. It's uh, at Caroline Gleick on Instagram. Is that correct? Yep. Um, Yep. And also carolinegleick.com. Um, oh, I did want to ask you, uh, so it takes me long time to longer than it should sometimes to put together an Instagram post and yours are very detailed. Um, how long does it take you to put together one Instagram <gasps> post? That's, that's not a question I want to answer. I mean, it takes like way too long. Sometimes uh, they take me, a number. I don't know, like two hours. Wow. Of I don't know. I mean, some of them, they take me like weeks of thinking about. Oh, so, like, so you're like drafting that. it somewhere? 
Yeah, like I'll think of it like on a hike, like I want to write about this. But then I, it takes me sometimes a while before I get the bravery to post some yeah. things that I post. <laughs> like I have to really like gather up some courage and like it, I don't know, they exhaust me. It's exhausting. Okay. But Car- it's cool. Two hour Instagram posts. Uh, yeah, you can check that out at Caroline Glyke. Uh, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Links to everything we talked about, gear recommendations, articles by Caroline, and more on her Meister profile page, mtnmeister.com. Next up is our company spotlight segment of Mountain Meister, where we introduce you to lesser-known outdoor brands, and then we review the products to see if they're worth buying. Companies are not allowed to pay to be featured on the segment, and in turn, we can say whatever we want about them. Today's company spotlight is with on-site equipment, and I spoke with their marketing and business development manager, Jens Oram. We started off uh, venturing back into this category uh, with a pretty fun and we thought unique design challenge for for our design team, which was to come up with a, a suite of frame bags that would fit 70 to 80% of your, your adult um, touring frames. And then on top of it, making it from recycled materials, which there wasn't really anyone out there at the time that, that we're aware of uh, that was doing that. And then thirdly, you know, make it, at least in terms of uh, bags like our, our top two bag and our handlebar bag, uh, make, make them that are really, really basically uh, transferable from the, the touring or the bike packing environment to your commuter um, who's looking for a bag that just needs to be able to carry some essentials and therefore needs to be able to access it at a, at a price point that's a little bit more reasonable than a lot of the two $300 frame bags you see out there. And you deliver on the, on the duffel bag especially has a strap that you can uh, kind of just lock on each side and use it as an actual duffel bag uh, in addition to the frame bag that you have between your handlebars. Awesome. Yeah, I'm glad that worked out for you guys. Um, yeah, we were, we were pretty confident that there was a market and that there are uh, people out there that are, are sort of in the same boat as us that are always thinking and planning for fun, you know, multi-day bike backing and, and touring adventures, but are also a little bit realistic that the majority of the use they're going to get out of these bags is going to be on a, on a, especially if they're on a, a commuter or a hybrid uh, style frame is mostly for, for getting around um, an urban environment and therefore it needs to be able to come on and off easily. It needs to be uh, practical in terms of not being so incredibly pricey that it's going to become a target for thieves. Um, and then, you know, on top of it, we just wanted to make sure that it fit within uh, our overall ethos as a company, which is to, to make things as, as environmentally low impact or in this case negative impact do you do you have a favorite product in the line uh or or even outside of the line uh just like within the bags that the company makes yeah i mean i think for the the touring bags the the handlebar bag given the functionality that that you've identified there uh being able to turn from what i think is a really practical shoulder bag to into a a a handlebar frame bag that you know fits quite a, a decent amount of volume um, is is highly water resistant. You know the the first tests uh, on those bags were done in uh, <laughs> very monsoon intensive environments. You know we're we're in a pretty wet environment up here in the in the wet coast of Canada, and uh, and we like to think that we have a good environment to test 
uh, bags of, of that nature. And then I think secondly would, would be the top two bag, uh, which, you know, is, is a pretty standard one in the world of, of bike touring uh, or, or bike packing in this day and age. Um, but we kind of came up with a couple little tweaks that we figured would make it particularly relevant. We figured it needed to be able to fit a standard uh, 750 milliliter wine bottle for your, your hot tinder dates. So uh, so that was a fun one that we just had to adjust a few different uh, dimensions for to make that a reality. So I noticed uh, that most of the bags have a pretty plain design. There, uh, A lot of them are just black. What What is the reasoning behind that? Yeah, I mean... There's a sustainability story to, to every choice that goes into these these products, and I think honestly every product in in our line. and uh, And one of those choices is is around colors and the reality that you encounter with a lot of uh, outdoor companies these days is that they've they've gone a, a fashion oriented, uh, gone towards a fashion oriented approach, which is every season. You will bring in uh, new colors, and you will phase out the old colors. And well, of course, there's there's nothing to be said against you know improving or updating the aesthetics of of your product. Uh, black tends to be a really really popular one year over year, believe it or not. For our purposes, uh, being able to use those you know those basic colors. In some cases, it's a grige, which is an undyed gray, uh, and in in more cases than not, it's the black. That allows us to have access to a wider variety of recycled materials um, by choosing to have a, a smaller variety of material colors. Yeah, I suspect that I will be using these bags for uh, many years to come. Uh, Max, Hannah, and I were all really excited about using them. Uh, we like them a lot. We hope uh, that our listeners will consider getting them if they need some frame bags. Uh, wondering, I forgot to ask you about this beforehand, as I always do, but can we hook people up with a uh, like a discount code for or on your website? Yeah, absolutely. So we'll have a, a discount code that'll be Mountain Meister twenty five. We're going into our twenty fifth anniversary next year uh, in twenty nineteen. So we figured, you know, we could do twenty four, but twenty five is just a little bit sexier. <laughs> Um, and we're getting there, you know, one month away. Um, so yeah, well, it'll be MTN Meister 25 at, at checkout and, uh, and then I'll be 25% off any orders up to $500. Before you decide whether or not you want to take advantage of this deal, how about listen to the review from Hannah Van Wetter, roommate Max and I, we had a chance to try out on-site equipment frame bags and a couple of bike packing adventures. We got to bike the White Rim uh, Road in Moab, Utah, over Thanksgiving. So about a week and a half ago, we met up with a bunch of friends and um, did, uh, it's an 100-mile road. It's like a four-wheeling dirt road. So it's a little bit of technical riding, but mostly double track. Um, And we did it over two days. So we rode two 50-mile days in the desert. It was sweet. Very cool. I used mine uh, riding from Pittsburgh to D.C., which is uh, half a limestone ground trail and the other half like a dirt towpath. What bags did you use, Max? What did you use on your bike? Uh, so I was riding with Forma Large Frame Bag and the Circo Handlebar Duffel. Okay. Probably carrying like 
let's guess roughly 25 liters of gear on my bike, which was mostly puffy jackets, extra pair of gloves, two liters of water, a bunch of snacks. Um, The way that we packed our bikes, we were carrying all of our day-to-day stuff and our support vehicle was carrying like tents, sleeping bags, cooking equipment, food, things like that. Okay, so one of those is the duffel bar pack, which kind of fits in between the drop bars, uh, or or just like on the front of the handlebars on the bike. And then right. the what's the where does the other one fit? The the large frame bag, the yeah. form, um, is is just like it fits in the triangle, um, where like normally you would have a water bottle or that's the big triangle. Yeah, yeah. And then Hannah, which one were you using? I was using the. Uh, the Formo large frame bag as well. And then a Verico straddle bag. Okay. So the, the frame bag and then the Verico straddle bag kind of goes over your top tube and it sort of sits like right behind your stem. Um, really good for accessing snacks and, and whatever. We also had the Formo small frame bag, which we lent to a friend who ha- who was riding a full suspension mountain bike. Cause the way that the rear suspension eats up a lot of space in your triangle, you can't fit that large bag. That bag is funny. Maybe you could fit like one jacket if you really stuffed it in there, but it uh, mostly is just meant for like tools, toothbrushes, and knives. Okay. <laughs> and I'm sure it would fit. I'm sure it would fit a tool, tool set or like a pump or something. Well, it's also billed as a frame bag for a full, full suspension, suspension bikes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what did you hear on your bike? Yeah, so I use the duffel, uh, same one as Max, fit right in between the drop bars on my touring bike, and then. Uh, I use the straddler. I forget what the name of that is, but it's like a little mini pack that, yeah, same one that you used, Hannah. Straddle bag, yeah. Yeah, and so that sits right behind the stem. Like, uh, loved both of them. My knees occasionally would bump that little straddle bag. Really? Yeah, and so I just like would nudge it up a little bit and then it would be fine for a bunch of miles and then it would slide back just a little bit more. I liked the way that... um they were all waterproof and super easy to like zip and unzip mm-hmm. and they stored a lot. I mean, like Max said, we would, so when we were in Moab, it was Thanksgiving week and we would wake up in the morning and it would be about 25 degrees. So we would be in tights, pants, t-shirt, long sleeve shirt, down jacket, rain jacket, vest. So it was a lot of clothing yeah. to start out. And then warm up and you would just shed layers as the day went on and we didn't have easy access to the truck all the time. So you really had to be able to carry pretty much everything you were wearing during the day. Um, and I was super impressed with the amount of storage we had, including carrying two liters of water. Neither of us carried backpacks. Um, mm-hmm. we had like fanny packs, um, and that, you had no, no, uh, panniers. No, no panniers. Wow. So you fit everything in those, in these frame bags. Yeah. Yeah, more or less. That's yeah. Very impressive. So let's, say, let's say that like I had all my camp clothes. So uh, a pair of Thunderbolt pants, a black diamond puffy, a uh, pair of smart wool socks, pair of um what were they? Um Saks underwear. Yeah, congrats on being so technical. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I'm just like trying to plug some brands here. Anyways, but like you you had like a full change of clothes in just that duffel, and then I had water, food. Um, like some bike stuff in my frame bag. I I totally agree with you, uh, Hannah, about the waterproofness of the all the gear and the easy to use zippers. That I was really psyched about. 
cons, uh, I could see the duffel bag, like the the handlebar one, if there was too much weight in it, I have a feeling that it would kind of sag uh, to the point where it'd be floppy and annoying. Yeah. Well, it would also like affect the handling of your bike at that point. Mm. Which is something I worried about because I was like, all right, this is a massive bag right under my handlebars. Like, how is this going to affect the way my bike steers? Mm. Uh, and frankly, like, didn't really think about it the whole trip. <laughs> yeah. Well, but you only had, like, a light light thing in there, right? Right. It was all, like, down layers. Yeah. For the okay. Um, I, but, but that's most, you know, like, probably packing preference. You're not going to put, like, that's your true. water. Yeah. Cooking, yeah, good point. Like, food in there. So I guess the other thing is, like, they're a tiny bit plain looking aesthetically. They're just, like, black bags. But I feel <laughs> like you would have these things forever. Like, they're not really going to go out of fashion. And they'd match uh, on any bike. You and they match on. on any bike, exactly. And you can adjust them onto any bike. These retail for, let's see. Between say, like 40 and $70, I'd yeah, say. Yeah, that sounds right. So that, that handlebar duffel is $70. The frame uh, bag the big frame bag is 60 Straddler is $40. Um, Hannah, would you buy these with your own money? Definitely. Max and I were talking about them. It's, it's really nice, and I think bikepacking can be kind of an intimidating adventure to, to go on because it feels like you have to have a very specific bike and you have to have very specific gear. And barring having you know a specific touring bike, which you were super lucky to have, we may do with, with a hardtail and then sort of a gravel bike, um, it's really nice to have a bag that, that performs really well and makes you feel like all of your gear is secure and that you can kind of just jump into it without having a ton of very specific things. You know, Ben sent us these four different bags and we were able to make them work for both of us between the two of us totally covered, um, our needs. And it was just, it made like our first backpack bike packing trip so much more enjoyable to know that everything you were doing was like secure and that all your stuff functioned very well. Mm-hmm. Max, would you buy, would you buy these with your own money? I think if I, were to buy frame bags, like if I'm going to go on a bike pack, I realize that frame bags are frankly like indispensable. Um, I, I would, yeah, I'd buy these bags if, if I'm, if I'm needing to go on a bike pack, um, just with that handlebar bag, like it stored so much stuff, way more than I was anticipating and felt like pretty burly. Um, I would buy these with my own money. I think they're a good price point. Yeah, they are. If you look at Ortlieb, which is like a big time bike packing brand, they do a lot, like a lot of panniers and such. Yep. They're way more expensive than this. And I feel like I had an Ortlieb pannier. I mean, it, it's nice. Don't get me wrong, but this is like still waterproof. And also for uh, people who shop, like to shop for eco-friendly gear, uh, this is made from lots of recyclable materials. Here's a different, here's a comparison of a, of a price bag. We had some friends that had the Surly cross bag, which is very similar to the large frame bag that Onsite makes. Okay. And it's, it sells for $185. Wow. So that's like more than. More than $100 more. Yeah. $100 more than the Onsite one. So I think, and I think to Max's point, if you go on one bike pack a year, we realized it's really super necessary to have bags that fit many different bikes and you know serve a super solid purpose we'll definitely be be buying some of these that's 25 percent off with the code mountainmeister25 mtn meister25 at onsiteequipment.com 
It will probably take a lot to reach that $500 threshold, but just in case you do, that's the limit. That's all for today's episode of Mountain Meister. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like to hear more about my ride from Pittsburgh to Washington, D.C., you can listen to a whole podcast episode about it. It's on the Outdoor Industry Association's podcast, Audio Outdoorist. Just search Outdoorist, O-U-T-D-O-O-R-I-S-T, on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, I hope you enjoy doing the rest of whatever else you do while you listen to the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. I'm your host, Ben Shank. Thanks for listening to Mountain Meister.